Section 8 of Weird Tales Presents The Strange World of Harry Houdini. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, Part 2, by H.P. Lovecraft, as Houdini. It was very gradually that I regained my senses after that eldritch flight through the Stygian space. The process was infinitely painful and colored by fantastic dreams in which my bound and gagged condition found singular embodiment. The precise nature of these dreams was very clear, while I was experiencing them but became blurred in my recollection almost immediately afterward, and was soon reduced to the merest outline by the terrible events, real or imaginary, which followed. I dreamed that I was in the grasp of a great and horrible paw, a yellow, hairy, five-clawed paw, which had reached out of the earth to crush and engulf me. And when I stopped to reflect what the paw was, it seemed to me that it was Egypt. In the dream I looked back at the events of the preceding weeks and saw myself lured and enmeshed little by little, subtly and insidiously, by some hellish ghoul spirit of the Elder Nile sorcery. Some spirit that was in Egypt before ever man was, and that will be when man is no more. I saw the horror and the unwholesome antiquity of Egypt, and the grisly alliance it has always had with the tombs and temples of the dead. I saw phantom processions of priests with the heads of bulls, falcons, cats, and ibises, phantom processions marching interminably through subterraneous labyrinths and avenues of titanic propalia, beside which a man is as a fly and offering unnameable sacrifices to indescribable gods. Stone colossi marched in endless night, and drove herds of grinning androsphinxes down to the shores of illimitable stagnant rivers of pitch, and behind it all I saw the ineffable malignity of primordial necromancy, black and amorphous, and fumbling greedily after me in the darkness to choke out the spirit that had dared to mock it by emulation. In my sleeping brain there took shape a melodrama of sinister hatred and pursuit, and I saw the black soul of Egypt singling me out and calling me in inaudible whispers, calling me and luring me, leading me on with the glitter and glamour of a Saracenic surface, but ever pulling me down to the age-mad catacombs and horrors of its dead, an abysmal, pharaonic heart. Then the dream faces took on human resemblances, and I saw my guide Abdul Reese in the robes of a king, with the sneer of the sphinx on his features, and I knew that those features were the features of Catherine the Great, who raised the second pyramid, carved over the sphinx's face in the likeness of his own and built that titanic gateway temple whose myriad corridors the archaeologists think they have dug out of the cryptical sand and the uniformative rock. And I looked at the long, lean, rigid hand of Kephron, the long, lean, rigid hand as I had seen it on the diorite statue in the Cairo Museum, the statue they had found in the terrible gateway temple, and wondered that I had not shrieked when I saw it on Abdul Rees. That hand! It was hideously cold, and it was crushing me. It was the cold and cramping of the sarcophagus, the chill and constriction of unrememberable Egypt. 
It was knighted, necropolitan Egypt itself, that yellow paw, and they whisper such things of Kefrin. But at this juncture I began to awake, or at least to assume a condition less completely that of sleep than the one just preceding. I recalled the fight atop the pyramid, the treacherous Bedouins and their attack, my frightful descent by rope through endless rock depths, and my mad swinging and plunging in a chill void redolent of aromatic putrescence. I perceived that I now lay on a damp rock floor, and that my bonds were still biting into me with unloosened force. It was very cold, and I seemed to detect a faint current of noisome air sweeping across me. The cuts and bruises I had received from the jagged sides of the rock shaft were paining me woefully, their soreness enhanced to a stinging or burning acuteness by some pungent quality in the faint drought. And the mere act of rolling over was enough to set my whole frame throbbing with untold agony. As I turned, I felt a tug from above, and concluded that the rope whereby I was lowered still reached to the surface. Whether or not the Arabs still held it, I had no idea. Nor had I any idea how far within the earth I was. I knew that the darkness around me was wholly or nearly total, since no ray of moonlight penetrated my blindfold. But I did not trust my senses enough to accept as evidence of extreme depth the sensation of vast duration which had characterized my descent. Knowing at least that I was in a space of considerable extent, reached from the surface directly above by an opening in the rock, I doubtfully conjectured that my prison was perhaps the buried gateway chapel of old Kefren, the temple of the Sphinx, perhaps some inner corridor which the guides had not shown me during my morning visit, and from which I might easily escape if I could find my way to the barred entrance. It would be a labyrinthine wandering, but no worse than others out of which I had in the past found my way. The first step was to get free of my bonds, gag and blindfold, and this... I knew it would be no great task, since subtler experts than these Arabs had tried every known species of fetter upon me during my long and varied career as an exponent of escape, yet had never succeeded in defeating my methods. Then it occurred to me that the Arabs might be ready to meet and attack me at the entrance upon any evidence of my probable escape from the binding cords, as would be furnished by any decided agitation of the rope which they probably held. This, of course, was taking for granted that my place of confinement was indeed Kefren's Temple of the Sphinx. The direct opening in the roof, wherever it might lurk, could not be beyond easy reach of the ordinary modern entrance near the Sphinx, if in truth it were any great distance at all on the surface, since the total area known to visitors is not at all enormous. I had not noticed any such opening during my daytime pilgrimage, but knew that these things are easily overlooked amid the drifting sands. Thinking these matters over as I lay bent and bound on the rock floor, I nearly forgot the horrors of abysmal descent and cavernous swinging which had so lately reduced me to a coma. My present thought was only to outwit the Arabs, and I accordingly determined to work myself free as quickly as possible, avoiding any tug on the descending line which might betray an effective or even problematical attempt at freedom. This, however, was more easily determined than effected. A few preliminary trials made it clear that little could be accomplished without considerable motion, and it did not surprise me when, after one especially energetic struggle, I began to feel the coils of falling rope as they piled up about me and upon me. Obviously I thought the Bedouins had felt my movements and released their end of the rope, hastening, no doubt, to the temple's true entrance to lie murderously in wait for me. 
The prospect was not pleasing, but I had faced worse in my time without flinching and would not flinch now. At present I must first of all free myself of bonds, then trust to ingenuity to escape from the temple unharmed. It is curious how implicitly I had come to believe myself in the old temple of Kephrin beside the Sphinx, only a short distance below the ground. That belief was shattered, and every pristine apprehension of preternatural depth and demoniac mystery revived by a circumstance which grew in horror and significance, even as I formulated my philosophical plan. I have said that the falling rope was piling up about and upon me. Now I saw it was continuing to pile as no rope of normal length could possibly do. It gained in momentum and became an avalanche of hemp, accumulating mountainously on the floor and half burying me beneath its swiftly multiplying coils. Soon I was completely engulfed and gasping for breath as the increasing convolutions submerged and stifled me. My senses tottered again, and I vainly tried to fight off a menace desperate and ineluctable. It was not merely that I was tortured beyond human endurance, not merely that life and breath seemed to be crushed slowly out of me. It was the knowledge of what those unnatural lengths of rope implied, and the consciousness of what was unknown and incalculable gulfs of inner earth must be at this moment surrounding me. My endless descent and swinging flight through goblin space then must have been real, and even now I must be lying helpless in some nameless cavern world toward the core of the planet. Such a sudden confirmation of ultimate horror was insupportable, and the second time I lapsed into merciful oblivion. When I say oblivion, I do not imply that I was free from dreams. On the contrary, my absence from the conscious world was marked by visions of the most unutterable hideousness. God! If only I had not read so much Egyptology before coming to this land, which is the fountain of all darkness and terror. The second spell of fainting filled my sleeping mind anew with shivering realization of the country and its archaic secrets, and through some damnable chance my dreams turned to the ancient notions of the dead and their sojournings in soul and body beyond those mysterious tombs which were more houses than graves. I recalled in dream shapes which it is well that I do not remember the peculiar and elaborate construction of Egyptian sepulchres and the exceedingly singular and terrific doctrines which determined this construction. All these people thought of was death and the dead. They conceived of a literal resurrection of the body, which made them mummify it with desperate care, and preserve all the vital organs in canopic jars near the corpse, whilst besides the body they believed in two other elements, the soul, which after its weighing and approval by Osiris, dwelt in the land of the blessed, and the obscure and portentous Ka, or life principle, which wandered about the upper and lower worlds in a horrible way, demanding occasional access to the preserved body, consuming the food offerings brought by priests and pious relatives to the mortuary chapel, and sometimes, as men whispered, taking its body or the wooden double always buried beside it, and stalking noxiously abroad on errands peculiarly repellent. For thousands of years these bodies rested gorgeously encased and staring glassily upward when not visited by the Ka, awaiting the day when Osiris should restore both Ka and soul, and lead forth the stiff legions of the dead from their sunken houses of sleep. It was to have been a glorious rebirth, 
but not all souls were approved, nor were all tombs inviolate, so that certain grotesque mistakes and fiendish abnormalities were to be looked for. Even today the Arabs murmur of unsanctified convocations and unwholesome worship in forgotten nether abysses, which only winged invisible cars and soulless mummies may visit and return unscathed. Perhaps the most leeringly blood-congealing legends are those which relate to certain perverse products of decadent priestcraft, composite mummies made by the artificial union of human trunks and limbs with the heads of animals in imitation of the elder gods. At all stages of history, the sacred animals were mummified, so that consecrated bulls, cats, ibises, crocodiles, and the like might return some day to greater glory. But only in the decadence did they mix the human and animal in the same mummy, only in the decadence when they did not understand the rights and prerogatives of the ka and the soul. What happened to those composite mummies is not told of, at least publicly. And it is certain that no Egyptologist ever found one. The whispers of Arabs are very wild, and cannot be relied upon. They even hint that old Kefrin, he of the Sphinx, the Second Pyramid, and the Yawning Gateway Temple, lives far underground wedded to the ghoul queen Nitocris, and ruling over the mummies that are neither of man nor of beast. It was of these, of Kefrin and his consort and his strange armies of the hybrid dead, that I dreamed. And that is why I am glad the exact dream shapes have faded from my memory. My most horrible vision was connected with an idle question I had asked myself the day before when looking at the great carven riddle of the desert, and wondering with what unknown depths the temple so close to it might be secretly connected. That question, so innocent and whimsical then, assumed in my dream a meaning of frenetic and hysterical madness. What huge and loathsome abnormality was the Sphinx originally carven to represent? My second awakening, if awakening it was, is a memory of stark hideousness which nothing else in my life, save one thing which came after, can parallel. And that life has been full and adventurous beyond most men's. Remember that I had lost consciousness, whilst buried beneath a cascade of falling rope, whose immensity revealed the cataclysmic depth of my present position. Now as perception returned, I felt the entire weight gone, and realized upon rolling over, that although I was still tied, gagged, and blindfolded, some agency had removed completely the suffocating hempen landslide which had overwhelmed me. The significance of this condition, of course, came to me only gradually, but even so I think it would have brought unconsciousness again had I not by this time reached such a state of emotional exhaustion that no new horror could make much difference. I was alone. With what? Before I could torture myself with any new reflection or make any fresh effort to escape from my bonds, an additional circumstance became manifest. Pains not formerly felt were racking my arms and legs, and I seemed coated with a profusion of dried blood, beyond anything my former cuts and abrasions could furnish. My chest, too, seemed pierced by a hundred wounds, as though some malign titanic ibis had been pecking at it. Assuredly, the agency which had removed the rope was a hostile one, and had begun to wreak terrible injuries upon me when somehow impelled to desist. Yet at the same time my sensations were distinctly the reverse of what one might expect. Instead of sinking into a bottomless pit of despair, I was stirred to new courage and action, for now I felt that the evil forces were physical things which a fearless man might encounter on an even basis. 
On the strength of this thought, I tugged again at my bonds and used all the art of a lifetime to free myself, as I had so often done amidst the glare of lights and the applause of vast crowds. The familiar details of my escaping process commenced to engross me, and now that the long rope was gone, I half regained my belief that the supreme horrors were hallucinations after all, and that there had never been any terrible shaft, measureless abyss, or interminable rope. Was I, after all, in the gateway temple of Kephren beside the Sphinx, and had the sneaking Arabs stolen in to torture me as I lay helpless there? At any rate, I must be free. Let me stand up unbound, ungagged, and with eyes open to catch any glimmer of light, which might come trickling from any source, and I could actually delight in the combat against evil and treacherous foes. How long I took in shaking off my encumbrances, I cannot tell. It must have been longer than in my exhibition performances, because I was wounded, exhausted, and enervated by the experiences I had passed through. When I was finally free and taking deep breaths of a chill, damp, evilly spiced air, all the more horrible when encountered without the screen of gag and blindfold edges. I found that I was too cramped and fatigued to move at once. There I lay trying to stretch a frame bent and mangled for an indefinite period, and straining my eyes to catch a glimpse of some ray of light which would give me a hint as to my position. By degrees my strength and flexibility returned, but my eyes beheld nothing. As I staggered to my feet I peered diligently in every direction yet met only an ebony blackness, as great as that I had known when blindfolded. I tried my legs, blood encrusted beneath my shredded trousers, and found that I could walk, yet could not decide in what direction to go. Obviously I ought not to walk at random, and perhaps retreat directly from the entrance I sought, so I paused to note the direction of the cold, fetid, natron-scented air current which I had never ceased to feel, accepting the point of its source as the possible entrance to the abyss. I strove to keep track of this landmark and to walk consistently toward it. I had had a matchbox with me and even a small electric flashlight, but of course the pockets of my tossed and tattered clothing were long since emptied of all heavy articles. As I walked cautiously in the blackness, the drought grew stronger and more offensive, till at length I could regard it as nothing less than a tangible stream of detestable vapor, pouring out of some aperture like the smoke of the genie from the fisherman's jar in the eastern tale. The east... Egypt. Truly this dark cradle of civilization was ever the wellspring of horrors and marvels unspeakable. The more I reflected on the nature of this cavern wind, the greater my sense of disquiet became. For although despite its odor I had sought its source, as at least an indirect clue to the outer world, I now saw plainly that this foul emanation could have no admixture or connection whatsoever with the clean air of the Libyan desert but must be essentially a thing vomited from sinister gulfs still lower down. I had, then, been walking in the wrong direction. After a moment's reflection, I decided not to retrace my steps. Away from the drought, I would have no landmarks, for the roughly level rock floor was devoid of distinctive configurations. If, however, I followed up the strange current, I would undoubtedly arrive at an aperture of some sort, from whose gate I could perhaps work round the walls to the opposite side of this cyclopean and otherwise unnavigable hall. That I might fail, I well realized. I saw that this was no part of Catherine's gateway temple which tourists know, and it struck me that this particular hall might be unknown even to archaeologists, and merely stumbled upon by the inquisitive and malignant Arabs who had imprisoned me. If so, was there any present gate of escape to the known parts or to the outer air? 
What evidence indeed did I now possess that this was the gateway temple at all? For a moment all my wildest speculations rushed back upon me, and I thought of that vivid melange of impressions, descent, suspension in space, the rope, my wounds, and the dreams that were frankly dreams. Was this the end of life for me? Or indeed, would it be merciful if this moment were the end? I could answer none of my own questions, but merely kept on till fate for a third time reduced me to oblivion. This time there were no dreams, for the suddenness of the incident shocked me out of all thought, either conscious or subconscious, tripping on an unexpected descending step at a point where the offensive drought became strong enough to offer an actual physical resistance. I was precipitated headlong down a black flight of huge stone stairs into a gulf of hideousness unrelieved. That I ever breathe again is a tribute to the inherent vitality of the healthy human organism. Often I look back to that night and feel a touch of actual humor in those repeated lapses of consciousness, lapses whose succession reminded me at the time of nothing more than the crude cinema melodramas of that period. Of course, it is possible that the repeated lapses never occurred, and that all the features of that underground nightmare were merely the dreams of one long coma, which began with the shock of my descent into that abyss, and ended with the healing balm of the outer air and of the rising sun which found me stretched on the sands of Giza before the sardonic and dawn-flushed face of the great Sphinx. I prefer to believe this latter explanation as much as I can. Hens was glad when the police told me that the barrier to Kefren's gateway temple had been found unfastened, and that a sizable rift to the surface did actually exist in one corner of the still-buried part. I was glad, too, when the doctors pronounced my wounds, only those to be expected from my seizure. Blinding, lowering, struggling with bonds, falling some distance perhaps into a depression in the temple's inner gallery, dragging myself to the outer barrier and escaping from it, and experiences like that. A very soothing diagnosis, and yet I know that there must be more than appears on the surface. That extreme descent is too vivid a memory to be dismissed and it is odd that no one has ever been able to find a man answering the description of my guide Abdul Rees el Drogman, the tomb-throated guide who looked and smiled like King Kefren. I have digressed from my connected narrative, perhaps in the vain hope of evading the telling of that final incident, that incident which, of all, is most certainly an hallucination, but I promised to relate it and do not break promises. When I recovered, or seemed to recover, my senses, after that fall down the black stone stairs, I was quite as alone and in darkness as before. The windy stench, bad enough before, was now fiendish. Yet I had acquired enough familiarity by this time to bear it stoically. Dazedly, I began to crawl away from the place whence the putrid wind came, and with my bleeding hands felt the colossal blocks of a mighty pavement. Once my head struck against a hard object, and when I felt of it, I learned that it was the base of a column, a column of unbelievable immensity, whose surface was covered with gigantic chiseled hieroglyphics, very perceptible to my touch. Crawling on, I encountered other titan columns at incomprehensible distances apart, when suddenly my attention was captured by the realization of something which must have been impinging on my subconscious hearing long before the conscious sense was aware of it. From some still lower chasm in earth's bowels were proceeding certain sounds, measured and definite, and like nothing I had ever heard before. That they were very ancient and distinctly ceremonial I felt almost intuitively. 
and much reading in Egyptology led me to associate them with the flute, the sambuke, the sistrum, and the tympanum. In their rhythmic piping, droning, rattling, and beating, I felt an element of terror beyond all the known terrors of earth. A terror peculiarly dissociated from personal fear, and taking the form of a sort of objective pity for our planet. That it should hold within its depths such horrors as must lie behind these Aegeopanic cacophonies. The sounds increased in volume, and I felt that they were approaching. Then, and may all the gods of all pantheons unite to keep the like from my ears again, I began to hear faintly and far off the morbid and millennial trumping of the marching things. It was hideous that footfalls, so dissimilar, should move in such perfect rhythm. The training of unhallowed thousands of years must lie behind that march of earth's inmost monstrosities. Padding, clicking, walking, stalking, rumbling, lumbering, crawling, and all to the abhorrent discords of those mocking instruments. And then, God keep the memory of those Arab legends out of my head, the mummies without souls, the meeting place of the wandering cause, the hordes of the devil-cursed pharaonic dead of forty centuries. The composite mummies led through the uttermost onyx voids by King Kephren and his ghoul queen, Nitocris. The tramping grew nearer. Heaven save me from the sound of those feet and paws and hooves and pads and talons as it commenced to acquire detail. Down limitless reaches of sunless pavement, a spark of light flickered in the malodorous wind, and I drew behind the enormous circumference of a cyclopic column that I might escape for a while the horror that was stalking million-footed towards me through gigantic hypostyles of inhuman dread and phobic antiquity. The flickers increased, and the tramping and dissonant rhythm grew sickeningly loud. In the quivering orange light there stood faintly forth a scene of such stony awe that I gasped from a sheer wonder that conquered even fear and repulsion. Bases of columns whose middles were higher than human sight, mere bases of things that must each dwarf the Eiffel Tower to insignificance, hieroglyphics carved by unthinkable hands and caverns where daylight can be only a remote legend. I would not look at the marching things. That I desperately resolved as I heard their creaking joints and nitrous wheezing above the dead music and the dead tramping. It was merciful that they did not speak, but God, their crazy torches began to cast shadows on the surface of those stupendous columns. Heaven take it away! Hippopotami should not have human hands and carry torches. Men should not have the heads of crocodiles. I tried to turn away, but the shadows and the sounds and the stench were everywhere. Then I remembered something I used to do in half-conscious nightmares as a boy, and began to repeat to myself, This is a dream. This is a dream. But it was of no use, and I could only shut my eyes and pray. At least that is what I think I did, for one is never sure in visions and I know that this can have been nothing more. I wondered whether I should ever reach the world again, and at times would furtively open my eyes to see if I could discern any feature of the place other than the wind of spiced putrefaction, the topless columns, and the thomatropically grotesque shadows of abnormal horror. The sputtering glare of multiplying torches now shone, and unless this hellish place were wholly without walls, I could not fail to see some boundary or fixed landmark soon. 
but I had to shut my eyes again when I realized how many of the things were assembling. And when I glimpsed a certain object walking solemnly and steadily, without any body above the waist, a fiendish and ululant corpse gurgle or death rattle now split the very atmosphere, the charnel atmosphere poisonous with naphtha and bitumen blasts, in one concerted chorus from the ghoulish legion of hybrid blasphemies. My eyes, perversely shaken open, gazed for an instant upon a sight which no human creature should ever imagine without panic, fear, and physical exhaustion. The things that filed ceremoniously in one direction, the direction of the noisome wind, where the light of their torches showed their bended heads, or the bended heads of such as had heads. They were worshipping before a great black photo-belching aperture, which reached up almost out of sight and which I could see was flanked at right angles by two giant staircases whose ends were far away in shadow. One of these was indubitably the staircase I had fallen down. The dimensions of the whole were fully in proportion with those of the columns. An ordinary house would have been lost in it, and any average public building could easily have been moved in and out. It was so vast a surface that only by moving the eye could one trace its boundaries, so vast, so hideously black, and so aromatically stinking. Directly in front of this yawning, polyphemous door, the things were throwing objects, evidently sacrifices or religious offerings, to judge by their gestures. Kefren was their leader, sneering King Kefren, or the guide Abdul Rees, crowned with a golden shint and intoning endless formulae with the hollow voice of the dead. By his side knelt beautiful Queen Nitocris, whom I saw in profile for a moment, noting that the right half of her face was eaten away by rats or other ghouls, and I shut my eyes again when I saw what objects were being thrown as offerings to the fetid aperture for its possible local deity. It occurred to me that, judging from the elaborateness of this worship, the concealed deity must be one of considerable importance. Was it Osiris or Isis, Horus or Anubis, or some vast unknown god of the dead still more central and supreme? There is a legend that terrible altars and colossi were reared to an unknown one before ever the known gods were worshipped. And now, as I steel myself to watch the rapt and sepulchral adorations of those nameless things, a thought of escape flashed upon me. The hall was dim and the columns heavy with shadow. With every creature of that nightmare throng absorbed in shocking raptures, it might be barely possible for me to creep past to the faraway end of one of the staircases and ascend unseen, trusting to fate and skill to deliver me from the upper reaches. Where I was I neither knew nor seriously reflected upon, and for a moment it struck me as amusing to plan a serious escape from that which I knew to be a dream. Was I in some hidden and unsuspected lower realm of Kefren's gateway temple, that temple which generations have persistently called the temple of the sphinx i could not conjecture but i resolved to ascend to life and consciousness if wit and muscle could carry me wriggling flat on my stomach i begun the anxious journey toward the foot of the left-hand staircase which seemed the more accessible of the two i cannot describe the incidents and sensations of that crawl but they may be guessed when one reflects on what i had to watch steadily in that malign wind-blown torchlight in order to avoid detection. The bottom of the staircase was, as I have said, far away in shadow, 
as it had to be to rise without a bend to the dizzy, parapeted landing above the titanic aperture. This placed the last stages of my crawl at some distance from the noisome herd, though the spectacle chilled me even when quite remote at my right. At length I succeeded in reaching the steps and begun to climb, keeping close to the wall, on which I observed decorations of the most hideous sort, and relying for safety on the absorbed, ecstatic interest with which the monstrosities watched the foul-breezed aperture and the impious objects of nourishment they had flung on the pavement before it. Though the staircase was huge and steep, fashioned of vast porphyry blocks, as if for the feet of a giant, the ascent seemed virtually interminable. Dread of discovery and the pain which renewed exercise had brought to my wounds combined to make that upward crawl a thing of agonizing memory. I had intended, on reaching the landing, to climb immediately onward along whatever upper staircase might mount from there, stopping for no last look at the carrion abominations that pawed and genuflected some seventy or eighty feet below. Yet a sudden repetition of that thunderous corpse-gurgle and death-rattle chorus, coming as I had nearly gained the top of the flight and showing by its ceremonial rhythm that it was not an alarm of my discovery, caused me to pause and peer cautiously over the parapet. The monstrosities were hailing something which had poked itself out of the nauseous aperture to seize the hellish fare, proffered it. It was something quite ponderous even as seen from my height, something yellowish and hairy and endowed with a sort of nervous motion. It was as large, perhaps, as a good-sized hippopotamus, but very curiously shaped. It seemed to have no neck but five separate shaggy heads, springing in a row from a roughly cylindrical trunk, the first very small, the second good-sized, the third and fourth equal, and largest of all, and the fifth rather small, though not so small as the first. Out of these heads darted curious rigid tentacles, which seized ravenously on the excessively great quantities of unmentionable food placed before the aperture. Once in a while the thing would leap up, and occasionally it would retreat into its den in a very odd manner. Its locomotion was so inexplicable that I stared in fascination, wishing it would emerge farther from the cavernous lair beneath me. Then it did emerge. It did emerge, and at the sight I turned and fled into the darkness up the higher staircase that rose behind me. Fled unknowingly up incredible steps and ladders and inclined planes to which no human sight or logic guided me, and which I must ever relegate to the world of dreams for want of any confirmation. It must have been dream, or the dawn would never have found me breathing on the sands of Giza before the sardonic dawn-flushed face of the Great Sphinx. The Great Sphinx! God! That idle question I asked myself on that sun-blessed morning before. What huge and loathsome abnormality was the Sphinx originally carven to represent? Accursed is the sight, be it in dream or not that revealed to me the supreme horror, the unknown god of the dead which licks its colossal chops in the unsuspected abyss, fed hideous morsels by soulless absurdities that should not exist. The five-headed monster that emerged, the five-headed monster as large as a hippopotamus, the five-headed monster, and that of which it is the merest forepaw. But I survived, and I know it was only a dream. End of section 8
End of Weird Tales Presents The Strange World of Harry Houdini.